Uh, my name is Sam Reed, and I am a Glass Tiger lifer. I am uh, the keyboard player, original founder, keyboard player from the band. Lifer because I go back to day one in 1981 when the band um, met each other out of high school, mm -hmm. and I'm still here today. High school is where in Newmarket. In Newmarket, yeah, That's correct. All Newmarket. of you grew up in that area. Uh, most of us in the area or the next town surrounding. So okay. uh, definitely a very small town. Everybody knows everybody type mm -hmm. vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved in music? Well, I, I have to thank my parents for that. Okay. <clears throat> they, uh, they, uh, when I was five or four and a half or whatever five, my mother took me to the doctor because I, I was ignoring them, and I had a, an old shortwave radio in the house, and uh, she was worried that I had some hearing problems because okay. I used to lay with my ear against the speaker on the shortwave radio that was in our living room. So the doctor, after doing the examination, said, "There's nothing wrong with your son." A, he just doesn't want to listen to you. <laughs> and uh, I would get him in music lessons, if I were you. There's nothing wrong with his hearing. So okay. turns out I was just tuning them out yes. and tuning the shortwave in, listening to, you know, Radio Moscow or whatever. And uh, so that uh, pr prompted them to look into some music lessons. That, I, I need to write that down because <laughs> may, maybe that's my son's issue. How old were you? I was five. He was okay. And I started piano lessons that year. Wow. Yeah, so when I was five. So that's how I got, that's where they came up with the plan to stick me into some piano lessons. It was either piano or accordion and not, not digging accordion, accordion players. Accordion. I'm not knocking yeah. them, but I'm glad they picked piano. I love sure. accordion. But I don't know if I'd have had the same future with accordion that I had with piano. Why would they think accordion? That's a, that's an interesting. Probably, be, probably because accordions are very readily available uh, and and less uh, oh, certainly lighter than pianos. Uh, probably just easier to bring into the house and mm. introduce you to music rather than a piano. But they ended up buying a seventy-five dollar piano, which I have to this day. I, I you just posted some I photos did. on Instagram. So, so I you think, are right? tuned into that. Yeah, and I'm delighted that it's my probably my most prized possession is my um, hundred year old piano that they bought for seventy five bucks when I was five. And how does it sound to to this day? I played it this morning because I'm getting ready for the show, and and I sit at it. That's and, coming on uh, stage. Um, I wish I could take it. I don't know whether it would weather the transport. Uh, it, okay. You know, when you get a hundred years old. Think about a person who's 100 years old. Sure. You know, th these are things that you have to kind of take into consideration. So I think the piano is comfortable where it is. Mm -hmm. As much as I would love to bring it on stage in Massey, I think it's going to stay at home. Yeah. Um, did you continue? Like, were you were you one of those kids, like, that loved music when, when your parents put you into it? Or was it something reluctantly that you, that you were doing? A little both. I, I started off loving it because when you're five uh, and I know because I went on to teach a bit of piano when I had younger students mm -hmm. there's this window of enthusiasm between five and like well just under teenage maybe five and twelve kind of sure, thing sure. and that window before girls arrive on the scene and before you start wandering off with your friends into other places without your parents mm -hmm. so life is pretty much centered around your home it's easier to focus uh, a young person at that age. Yeah. And then once they hit certainly preteen and then into teens, they're going to be distracted, you know, by sure. lots of things. Yeah. <clears throat> so in the early years, I was totally motivated, loved doing all the lessons. I had great piano teachers. 
And then I hit a bit of a, a wall with it. And um, remember my piano teacher taking my parents aside and said, we're not sure if piano is the best thing for Sam. And of course, they were shocked and said, well, why? And I said, well, you know, really, he's coming back every week with pretty much the same thing written in his notebook that we wrote the week before. So uh -huh. we know he's not really doing the work at home okay. in between. Mm -hmm. So progress isn't being made. So maybe he's lost interest in it. Yeah. And uh, I remember to this day vividly, my mom, my mom sit me down saying, you know, if you're done with it, we're okay with that. Yeah. And just hearing those words come out of her mouth resonated with me to the point where huh. I went, what do you mean, quit? And that's what turned me a little bit more focused back into, no, 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 I'm not, I, I really do want to do this. And so that's, that refocused me. And then I went on, uh, I, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the ebb and tide of the whole interest level. Right. And, and, mm. and, uh, I definitely, uh, you know, found my, my enthusiasm for it again, but there were moments where, you know, things go in your life and you kind of yeah. let it sit in the side of it. It's almost like your mom gave you permission to that's choose. It? Like, and that's your yeah. choice. We're not going to force you to do it. It's not something you have to do. It's if you want to do it, great. If not, we're okay with that too. And it's like, oh, I get to choose. And I think <laughs> it's because she gave me the license to say no, mm -hmm. that I didn't want to say no. And it was like, this sounds easy to quit. And I something resonated and I went, I don't quit. Wow. I don't want to quit. And but but it's like, wow, I can actually say I'm done with it. Mm -hmm. And some people do that. I mean, sure. I, 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 I understand that. But something with me just said, nope, no, I'm not going to quit. And then I refocused and stayed at it. And how old were you at this point? Uh, do you remember? I was I was about 11 or 12. Yeah. And again, that's the time where boys get a little distracted. Sure. With other things. Yeah. And uh, and it was like trying to fit. Well, it didn't help that my friends would, would sit outside my window Mm. And make faces at me when I was doing my piano lessons. <laughs> so they would they would be outside my my uh, where you could see my piano, mm -hmm. and they'd look through the window. And while I was practicing, I could see their faces in the window. <laughs> so that didn't help. That doesn't help at all. No. Yeah. We chased them away, and then all is good. Yeah, it's it's interesting because my my son is is that age. He's he's twelve years old now, uh, and he's been in a choir um, for the past five four or five years now. Um, and he just got moved up a level because the, um, the instructor was saying his voice is starting to change now. Um, and we want him to get to a higher level so that when it does break, when it does change, um, there'll be like less space for him. Um, and, and so, you know, let, let's move him up and get him some more advanced. And, and so I asked him, I said, your choice has always been your choice. Year one was us. Yeah. After that's been your yeah. choice. If you want to go in choir three. It's because you want to. And he says, yeah, let's do it. Right. You know. So he that's can't all do you can it on his for. own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but were, were, there, were there times as you grew older, you were, uh, you know, teenager, young adult, where it was like, okay, that's it. Let me go do something else. Or have you always been in music? Uh, for the most part, it's always been music. Yeah. Uh, I, I, was, I was really fortunate to have uh, a, a really great piano teacher that... Um, even though I was doing formal studies, which mm -hmm. means the Toronto Royal Conservatory of Music, sure. So it's a very formal, stri uh, stringent, um, you know, harmony, counterpoint, analysis, 
uh, a very structured program. Mm -hmm. She also, she sang with the Mendelssohn Choir, my teacher. Okay. And uh, she loved all forms of music. So she did encourage me um, to, uh, when I'd come in and I'd say, you know, I want to play this song from a band called Sticks. Yeah. You know, Come Sail Away or yeah. something. She'd say, well, let's find some sheet music for that. And let's nice. mix it in with the Mozart. Yeah. And let's do it at the next recital. So... That was really good, and it kept my interest level up, uh, certainly from a That's teaching great. point of view. Yeah. So she allowed uh, it allowed you to kind of do all forms of music, and um, and that stayed with me. And and, and honestly, the uh, um, <clears throat> you know migrating into the band stuff, obviously the classical stuff took a bit of a sideline. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm really grateful that she allowed other music, uh, sort of informal music, to be part of the the structure as well. That's nice. Do you remember the first? Music that you wrote yourself, original piece. Yeah, called "Wheels Go Round," and it's 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 very very simple, um, but it's 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 probably influenced at the time. Uh, I was listening to Duran Duran and Sticks, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know Men at Work and bands like that. So. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a little hint of everything. It's not ready for prime time. Okay. <laughs> certainly. Uh, but you know what? Still the, a work in progress. The spark, <laughs> I'll tell you that the one thing that, that does help yeah. when you're at that level, uh, even though at the time you think you're knocking on the door, you ah. think you're like one step away from writ writing the best thing in your life, yeah. which in reality you're not. Uh, but it was enough that um, I thought it was really cool and it encouraged me to keep writing. Oh, nice. And then it's, you know, it's... It's uh, through that process that you eventually end up on something where you go, ah, now when I listen back, it's it, it's keen to me. Like, I, I love it when I listen back to these early demos, but I do realize that they, they're not ready for prime time. <laughs> but they're an important step getting along the way. What about, what about your first band? Like, How old were you? What, what, what was the name of the band that you joined? Um, so in my little community, keyboard players were a premium, meaning... Ah meaning there were very few kids on the block that had a keyboard that was a house piano so it's portable so when you have a keyboard that is portable uh you're a hot commodity mm -hmm. in a small town uh <clears throat> so there was some older lads that caught wind of me mm -hmm. and thought okay well you know we we really want to have a keyboard player in a band because we want to do you know some of this uh, we want to do some uh uh, some sticks, and we want to do some. Uh, Try and think what we played back in the day with some Kiss stuff, mm. even Beth and yeah. stuff. Um, so these older lads invited me to come over, but I was quite a bit younger. I was about thirteen, yeah. and they would have been fifteen or sixteen. And that age group, that age gap for a boy is a big gap. It is, yeah. And later in life, it's a small gap, but mm -hmm. at that time, it's a big gap. So my first rehearsal with these older lads, they were stuck with having such a young guy in their band, which they needed, mm -hmm. who played keyboards, which was a rare commodity, yeah. but they didn't want the local chicks to see such a young kid. So they convinced me to play behind the furnace. Oh my. So my amp was yeah. out front in the main room, but I played uh, behind the furnace. <laughs> so that when kids come over, they yeah. wouldn't see anybody, but they could hear me. Yeah. And I got that was my first band. All right, what was? It? Do you remember the name of it? Yeah, it was called The End. The End. How appropriate! <laughs> but it was just the beginning. <laughs> it was the beginning, but it was the end of yeah, the end. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm always curious, you know, because every every now and again, 
um, you know, people talk about, you know, the first band and stuff like that. And it, it just so happens that there was a guy in the band or maybe related to the band that went off and did some great stuff. I'm, I'm curious whether um, The End or any other of these bands, early bands of yours, um, if anyone besides yourself uh, went on to uh, great things. Well, I survived The End. Yes. And and the drummer in the end became the drummer in Glass Tiger. Ah. So so him and I who who we 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 sort of ended on poor terms. Oh, okay. Uh, we 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 weren't that keen. Mm-hmm. Uh and certainly by the time that band had fizzled out, uh we were kind of done with it. But uh very talented lad uh and we enjoyed playing music. So when we got to meet the new crew mm-hmm. uh and got a chance to form a new band, uh, again, small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were happy to uh, get back together and and put the basically the, the what became Tokyo, which that was is, the original name, which is the original name that became Glass Tiger, which essentially is the same guys except for a name change. Yeah. So t- tell me, like, how did you know you're all you're all living in the same community or or, or close to that? Um, how did how did all of you guys hook up? How did you guys all meet and decide that you guys were gonna build this band? The, the the main catalyst for that was word of mouth, because okay. we were in different age groups. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so at school, we knew each other. It wasn't cool to hang out together because sure. there was a big age gap. Yeah. But on the sidelines, we knew each other and had respect for each other as, you know, he's a good guitar player. He's a good bass player. That guy's got keyboards. We got to get him in there. Mm-hmm. And then we quietly put together this uh, the core of uh, of these bands. And um, it sort of superseded the, the, the school rules as far as age groups and things. Mm-hmm. And, and that became the, uh, that became the, the, the foundation uh, and the more driving factor. It's really the bunch of guys that want to do this more than breathe. And that's, really? that is the guys that you go through band members yeah, and they will fall by the wayside. Sure. And we definitely had band members that fell by the wayside. And that could be a number of things. It could be my parents don't like what I'm doing mm-hmm. or they told me to get a job and I'm going to go this route or I got to focus on my studies and go that route. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when the dust settles, you're, you're standing in a room with, with four or five guys that want to do it more than breathe. And that's your band. Yeah. When, when, did, when did that hit you? Like, when did that become something for you? Like, you weren't just playing music. It wasn't just something to do, but it was like... I need to do this. Uh, that would be end of high school for me. So yeah. I was about 18. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, I had a scholarship for the University of Toronto mm-hmm. to go on in music, uh, in the music degree, to get a degree in music. Yeah. And uh, But the other guys who are a little older than me. Okay, so you're the baby of the band. I'm the baby of the band. <laughs> and they were ready to hit the road. Really? So my dilemma was, do I stay, do I go from high school and go, I had my university paid for which was sure. terrific. Yeah. And, or do I join the circus? And uh, I ended up joining the circus, obviously <laughs> now, in hindsight. Yeah. I don't really regret it, but my dad at the time, it was a big deal. Of course. And right? it was tough to go home and tell them that I was turning down paid university yeah. to join the circus. To join some yeah. band going which club is the to circus. club. Pretty much the circus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no guarantees. Were you, did you guys start off as a cover band or was it all original right away? We uh, we always wrote songs together. Yeah. Uh, I didn't write a lot back then. It took me a few years of the band being together to really develop me uh, my sort of my you know my desire to kind of try to write some music. We did a lot of covers, but we knew that our our 
livelihood and, and sort of presence in the music business relied on us cutting our own way. Because mm -hmm. every band starts out playing covers. I mean, yeah. whether it doesn't matter who your influences are, but at some point you have to find your, your own direction. Uh, we, we ended up uh, writing a lot of covers, and at that time it was very difficult playing bars because uh, uh, bar owners mm -hmm. would book you for a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night based on your set list. Ah. So it was top 40. So what we used to do, we would lie, and we would submit a set list. Some bar owners ask for a set list. Top 40 so, set list. Yeah. But in the set list, we would go out and we would do a song like Thin Red Line, which ended up on our first album, and we would mix it in with, with you know, with uh, Men at Work and Duran Duran and The Police and all the covers that we were doing. And then we would tell the audience that we were going to play a new song now from a band from England called The Thin Red Line. And we would play one of our songs, and we would tell nobody that it was our song, and the bar owner didn't know it was our yeah. song. And then you just try not to suck. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. If you're going to do that, don't suck. Yeah. You know? But we, um, because bar owners were really onto the, oh, my God, the band's doing an original set. Yeah. And a lot of bands made the mistake of telling the audience, we're going to do an original song now, ah. and you just killed it. Really? You should say nothing. Yeah. You should just go out, play an amazing song that they love, and play one of your songs that doesn't suck. Yeah. And don't tell and them. Don't tell them it's yours. Don't tell them. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we did it. And that's how we blended original material with cover material. Hmm. So you're playing like local bars um, yep. and, and stuff like that. Yep. I'm curious when your first... I know you guys opened um, for Culture Club. Uh, was that your first big gig, or was there anything that that happened before then? Um, we did we did lots of shows prior to that. Mm -hmm. However, um, that was the biggest show. And when we did Maple Leaf Gardens, we were still called Tokyo at the time. Okay. And we had never walked out in front of seventeen thousand people. So yeah. Wow. Yeah, that How was. How did they find you? Um, we. At that point, we attracted the interest of a guy named Derek Sutton, whose claim to fame mm -hmm. was this was Sticks. He found Sticks or put together Sticks and managed them right from the basement level right up to mega international yeah. stardom. Yeah. And Derek caught wind of us and flew up from Los Angeles. Loved the band, mm -hmm. and what he wanted to do, he said, "I've done this once in my life. I've brought a band from." the baby stage all the way through, I'd like to do it one more time to prove it wasn't a fluke. Yeah. And that was his announcement to us. And he said, and I think this is the band I can do it with. Wow. So he pulled a favor, mm -hmm. called a favor from his Sticks days, uh, the road manager for Culture Club. And when we arrived at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, we weren't greeted as, oh, you're the guys in Tokyo, or oh, you the guys in Glass Tiger. He said, oh, you're Derek's guys. Ah. So he pulled the favor yeah. and got us on as an opening position. And then you just don't suck. Just don't suck. Don't <laughs> suck. So we we rehearsed our ass off. Yeah, I can imagine. And we imported all of our fans from Newmarket, like a busload. Whatever you got to do, right? Whatever we got to do. Yeah. And even though we were the opening band and we were very small potatoes, sure. uh, we made sure that that front of the house was lined with... Tokyo fans at the time. Yeah. And they reacted, and the record company was in the audience and went, I don't know who they are, but where the hell did they come from? And that's what got us a record deal. That's very... 
you guys were like, but that's a very savvy move. Like my uh, a friend of mine, Greg Tilston, um, you know, he was in a, in a band that started off in Oshawa, mm-hmm. and and they they'd come into Toronto to play, and they would do the same thing. They'd bring, you know, they're playing in the clubs, and they'd yeah. bring one or two buses. And one of Greg's jobs was to get the bus and sell tickets um, to get the people on the bus. Um, is it were you guys doing that already, getting people from Newmarket to come down to Toronto? For clubs that you'd play here or, or how did you figure that this is something that you guys probably needed to do well we do we did know that we wanted to uh, make some ripples mm. uh, so the best way to do that is to have fans shouting at you yeah uh, they brought signage they brought everything uh, we had been doing clubs though in toronto we played back in the day there was a club called the falcon's nest there's bj cuddles there was djs there was um Nags Head North. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, we had a following, and these are core fans that would follow us in these venues. Yeah. But, of course, that's not Maple Leaf Gardens. No, and that's no. not. So, but we we had a really great core of fans, not only from Newmarket, but, but that would follow us around to these clubs. Mm-hmm. And we put the word out. The last two or three dates that we would do at these other venues, we'd say, hello, everybody. Next Friday, we're going to be at Maple Leaf Gardens. And we need you there. Yeah. And we would put the word out, and we had great fans. And they showed up. They showed up. Why did you guys decide to change the name from Tokyo to Glass Tiger? Tokyo sounds like a good name. Well, at the time, early 80s, mid-80s, early 80s, actually, because I would consider early 80s prior to 84, uh, there was a very um, uh, Oriental-influenced fashion trend at the time. Everybody, like, around, you'd see kimonos mm. you'd see the the japanese writing and it was a very popular uh, uh th- thing like the the there's a vibe about uh the japanese culture mm-hmm. and uh in a lot of fashions if you went to a store like le chateau you would see clothing mm. that had like japanese past, yeah. yeah so there was a bit of a vibe and i think that was an influence on okay. us and also uh we needed a name to put on a ticket because we had a gig a gig that we produce ourselves on a Friday night, and we had no name for the band, so we just said, "Guys, we have to print these tickets with a name on it. So come up with a name, or it's going to be the No Name Band on Friday." Mm. And uh, we tossed around a bunch of names. Our bass player came up with a name called Tokyo Rose. Okay. Which was kind of interesting, but the history of Tokyo Rose isn't very flattering. Mm. Tokyo Rose was a propagandist that would that would broadcast in the jungles of Vietnam over a loudspeaker, Tokyo Rose was a personality from the Vietnam from the Vietnamese yeah. that would broadcast to the American troops that while you guys are over here fighting, your wife's at home cheating on you. It was all propaganda to, to get their minds wow. going. Yeah, yeah. And her name was Tokyo Rose. Yeah. There was a song that by that same name, wasn't there? Well there was a couple of bands that included that. Ah. So Tokyo Rose was a name we were like it's a neat name, but there's a lot of baggage with yeah. that name. Yeah. So let's not maybe do the Rose thing. Yeah. And we shortened it to Tokyo. And that's how and that's we ended how up. That's how Tokyo came. That's how Tokyo came about. Yeah. But it was a name that we weren't really fond of ah. to the point where when we got a record deal, we said to ourselves, do we want to be branded with this name for our history? Like yeah. that's the for name every- of the band. Yeah. And band names are stupid anyways because. <laughs> True. Yeah. My friend at the time. Uh, was saying to me, oh, my God, you got to check out this band from England. I've got their album on import. They're called The Police. And I went, are you kidding me? What's next? The Firemen? <laughs> like, 
You're right. It's a stupid name. What the heck is a Led Zeppelin? Like, what, what is that? It's terrible. Even the Beatles is a yeah. stupid name. So band names are stupid yeah. anyway. And Tokyo wasn't a name we were fond of. And then we started tossing names around. Our guitar player was reading a book, and the term in the book was Paper Tiger, which was kind of an interesting combination of words, mm-hmm. but again, not very flattering, because Paper yeah. Tiger means false strength. Ah, yes, yes. Right? Yeah. So Alan, our singer, said, why don't you dump the paper for glass? Ah. And then we threw the glass on top of it, and we all looked at each other and went, that sounds good. Don't have an issue with that. <laughs> and that's how Glass and Tiger. And that's how Glass Tiger and there came you go. about. Yeah. And, and who was who that record deal with? Capital Records. Capital Records? Yeah. And they were they were at the concert? Were they were They, they were recording clubs? us. No, no, they weren't necessarily their label. I don't know who Culture Club was with at the time, but they were already courting us. Ah, Their secret investigators were already showing up at our gigs. Ah, interesting. And they kind of had an interest. We were were on their radar, put it that way. Yeah. But the Culture Club date clinched the deal, Mm -hmm. for sure. Interesting. Yeah. So you do that that gig at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. You got your fans in the front cheering you on as the opening act. Um... I'm, I'm assuming that the guys from the labels are impressed, you know, both with, wow, they've got actually like a following here, um, and they actually sound good as as well. We, you know, I, I listened to the early, early demos, and these are before anything's ever released. So these aren't maybe ready for prime time. Yeah. But I'll tell you, um, when we listen to the demos, and I listen to a lot of younger bands' demos, mm-hmm. and there's a range. Yeah. But I'll... There is definitely now when I listen back, even though it's not maybe worthy of a release, yeah, there are hints on those demos that definitely prove that our heads were in the game. Hmm, interesting. And I, I actually listen to it. I try to be objective, which is hard. Sure. But I definitely hear um, a very honest and truthful and a lot of uh, sort of inner talent uh, when I hear the guitar parts and I hear Alan singing. Um, you know, he, he cringes a little bit when it comes to some of the lyrics, because when you're, we I mean, basically, you, your songs revolve around the lyric and a melody mm-hmm. and some of the early lyrics he has trouble with now when he listens back and he goes, oh man, I don't know where my head was at. Yeah. But. Well, you're in your twenties. That's where your head exactly, was at. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely, barring, you know, the, the, the maturity thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I definitely hear a hint of, of, uh, we're knocking on the door. That's very interesting. And not like that, you, you guys weren't like around for very long at that point in time. Well, Just the funny thing years. for the band is that when the band broke, uh, we were we were sort of labeled mm-hmm. at one point as it happened so fast when Don't Forget Me hit the charts. Mm-hmm. The, la- the, the, the sort of word on the street was, well, the label manufactured them. As if it was like a bit like a monkey's thing. Like mm. they just brought these these people together and made this band. Yeah. And nothing could have been further from the truth because at that point, we had been four to five years slogging out in the bars. Sure. We weren't we weren't a one hit wonder, but no. we were labeled a little bit off the top. Yeah. Like they just come out because it happened so fast. Yeah. But in it's we're in a very small bubble when you're playing Northern Ontario. And Southern Ontario, and mm. Ontario in general, and maybe Quebec a little bit. Yeah. And that's your world. We did four or five years playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. Um, I mean, my first gigs, I played bars, started them when I was 15. Wow. And my dad applied for a letter, which I have a copy of, I can give you, 
um, to the liquor control board that mm-hmm. allowed me to play in licensed venues. Wow. Because it By was build, book. building a career. Yeah. So when we would go to a place, and I was 15, yeah. and I was playing a bar, I would hand the bar owner this letter, yeah. which gave him the ability to let me play in that uh, licensed so venue. And he wouldn't get in trouble. And he wouldn't get in trouble with the liquor control board. Yeah. I don't know if they do that today. Interesting. Yeah. But I did find out that it doesn't work for peelers. It does okay. <laughs> you, you, you definitely... You can't go anyways. I found that out. No, it does not. It's not a get out of jail free card. You got excited with that letter. <laughs> but I did maybe push the limits of that card. But yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, tell me the story about uh, hooking up with Jim Valance. How did that happen? That we have to give direct um, credit to um, to Dean Cameron, mm-hmm. uh, who was the president of uh, Capitol Records, and he was the head of A and R. Became president, but at the time he was the head of uh, artist relations at at, uh, at Capitol. And when he heard the band's music, Jim had also just completed some pretty heavy tunes with Brian Adams. Mm-hmm. I mean, cuts like a knife. Um, a heaven, uh, I mean, a string of hits, yeah. huge hits. And uh, I think Dean had a lot of respect for Jim mm-hmm. as a writer. And the initial thought was he loved everything that we had in the can, ready to make the first record. Yeah. But the, uh, record companies always like to have a little insurance in the bank. And they said, if you could maybe have one more that's geared towards radio mm-hmm. specifically like a hit single type thing. We love everything you have, but maybe it's worth it to go through the exercise. So he teed us up with Jim Balance, and it was more of a co-writing situation. Okay. And then became a product producer. Mm. We didn't know Jim was going to produce a record. Okay. We r- went to Vancouver and wrote Don't Forget Me and Someday yeah. on the first day with him. On the first day? On the first day, yeah. Did you guys have like ideas that you were nope. presenting to him? It was Nothing. just like... What we had, we walked in the room, yeah. and there's an interesting, uh, if, if, if you ever, if anybody's ever got a copy of the anniversary copy of Thin Red Line, which was written, which was released like two years ago, it was like an anniversary copy, mm-hmm. on, the, on the double CD set, there is a uh, working demo on the second CD, oh, wow. which is live in the room as we were writing the songs. My goodness, like the melody and everything. Yeah, everything. So at the time, I ran a live cassette in case we forgot something. Sure. In the room, it's just like recording a memo if somebody's giving a speech. Yeah. Well, we used to put a, a cassette player on. Uh, I'm showing my age there with cassette. But, <laughs> um, we would put it on in case we would record something and then we'd forget it and we had to refer back to it. Yeah. So I had these live writing tapes that I then cut down to the essence of where we hit the target. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating little listen because you hear, you hear the, the initial idea. Then you hear Alan singing made-up la-la-las, and then you hear a melody, yeah. and then you hear a little bit of structure, and then you hear a line or two, and as you progress through, you hear the final song. Hmm. And that's the, the progress, and that all happened in the same day. And did you guys know that, wow, these sound great, this is going to be a hit? Like, Did you guys have that realization, or was it like, okay, yeah, well, sounds good, we'll just throw it on the record? Or I, You know what? I remember... Uh, leaving that first trip in Vancouver, saying to Jim Valance, who has these hits, yeah, asking him honestly before he dropped me off, do you think these are okay, Jim? And he was snapping his finger, listening to the cassette tape in his car, and he said, oh, no, these are better than okay. These are great. And that meant a lot to me because we, no, we have no record out. No. We have no prior history of airplay or releases. 
and I got home and I told my mom and dad, you know, Mr. Valance says these are good. Yeah. And I remember that endorsement coming in and hoping that he was right. And, wow. And he's written a lot of hits in this day. Yeah. So having a guy like that, you know, give you that news and then go home. And then, of course, it, it, it did play out. So, um, what, what did you learn from, from that exercise? And, and I'm guessing, you know, continue throughout your career because I understand that you have you or do you teach writing? Is, is, did I read that correctly? Uh, I was on the um, songwriters board okay. for a while. So there's a wonderful association in based in Toronto, but mm-hmm. it's Canada-wide. It's the Songwriters Association. Yeah. And it was basically meant to gather up some mentors in the business that would groom some up-and-coming new writers, give them a bit of a leg up. The, the thing is that most songwriters write in a vacuum. Sure. Right? So you're at home, and certainly we did. Back in the day, other than sharing ideas with band members, which would be one or two main guys where you'd say, hey, I got an idea for a chorus. I got an idea for this 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 uh, verse or whatever. You would feed back from them. But as an industry, it's one of the few that that people work in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. If you are a, an auto mechanic, you apprentice. If you're an electrician, you apprentice with yeah. people who do what you want to do. Yeah. Very few people in the music industry do that. And so when I got involved in the Songwriters Association, it was more a reflection of why aren't we helping people mm. up and coming give them a bit of assistance to uh, you know to to kind of get some of the things get them going in this industry because so many industries have mentors and that's where the Songwriters Association was born. And it's gone on and it exists today. So back in the early days, I got involved in that. And I was happy to be involved. I did a lot of workshops and uh, with a resource leader. Mm-hmm. And it was all people from that had had some success in the business giving back, Yeah, basically. Yeah. So. Is there anything that you learned as you were giving, like as you were mentoring other uh, people in the music business, you know, up and coming acts? Um, on, on you know how to write music or, or how, where to get ideas from or, or inspiration? It's a very tricky thing to do. The, the difference between being an auto mechanic and, <laughs> and apprenticing something versus being a songwriter and apprenticing something is there are certain rules in auto mechanics yeah. where you say, this is a carburetor. This is the piece that goes on the carburetor. When you get into songwriting, it's not quite as literal it's as that. It's not structured like that. It's eh? not structured yeah. like that. Inspiration for writing comes from so many different places, and there are no rules. So a, lo- a lot of times I would sit on a board and, and, a, and a young songwriter would say, I'm writing songs, you've written songs, um, what should I be doing d- d- you know, to give myself a better chance? Mm-hmm. It's not that cut and dry. There isn't a blueprint for this. There's a structure to it. There's, there's some energy that you need to pay attention to, but it's quite elusive. And if you could bottle a hit song, and, and call on it whenever, and that's including people who have written hit songs. Yeah. If they could call on it on demand, they'd be doing it every day. Every day. So it doesn't work that way. True. Whereas an auto mechanic can pretty <laughs> much fix your car every day. That's so true. So there are differences. Yeah, I totally, totally get yeah. that. Um, you guys break. You, you, you release Thin Red Line. It's it, a massive hit success, that album. Uh, a couple of singles off of that become huge. Uh, you released the second album as well that did even better. Um, than the first, from my understanding. Um, what does that do to you as a band, as individuals, to, to, to get the success off your first couple of albums? Well, hitting a home run out of the gate 
yeah. uh, was something that uh, was quite surprising, mm-hmm. and, and it does change your perspective a little bit. Uh, one of the one of the things that um, our management team at the time, there's two routes to go when you release something. You either go on the slow burn, mm-hmm. which means, uh, especially when you go, uh, we were lucky enough to hit with a single, but when we got over to Europe, we could have gone over there and developed small clubs, yep. build on it, build on it, build on it. But at the time, we opted for the, the route was, why don't go over and open for somebody huge? So we did Tina Turner. Yeah. We did Journey in the U.S. Yeah. So we became a perpetual opening band mm. in every market outside of Canada. Yeah. The philosophy being, or the theory being, why not get in front of 17,000 people a night and show them what you're all about yeah. rather than 200 people in a club Interesting. and a slow burn. Yeah. So we took that route. It did work out well, although, you know, there's always, there's, there's a give and take. Yeah. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's no right or wrong with that. Uh, we did develop a lot of great fans and, and, uh, and the, the, uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't change any of those, that, that routing, but, uh, but, but, but that's a, a, basically, it's almost like a strategy as if you were, sure. if you were doing. A sports strategy, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's it's almost like a football play, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's one of the things that every band needs to have, and it'll be different for everyone. But yeah. but in our day, that's that was the game plan. Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, you win a bunch of awards here in Canada. You guys get nominated, I think, like best new act or best new band um, down in the states for the Grammy Awards. Yeah, um, that must be huge for like guys in their twenties. From small town well, Newmarket. Not only huge for guys <laughs> in their 20s from Newmarket, yeah. but it's also huge as a Canadian. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the short list of Canadian bands that got included on the list, and that's the thing that resonates with me, mm-hmm. is, you know, there's a very few. And and, and thankfully, for, for a nation that is a fraction of the population of a country like the U.S., mm-hmm. we're well represented yeah. and always represented. I mean, you've got... The Drake and the Biebers of today, mm-hmm. but back in the day, in our day, we, you know, you you had uh, the Brian Adams, yeah, and and Canada is well represented, uh, certainly on a global market. But being at the Grammys and being a Canadian band and sitting in the audience, sitting beside Paul Simon, and and uh, and uh, Peter Gabriel, and and uh, you know the, the Who, and and uh, you know all these acts and you go wow this is a pretty cool little group yeah you know and you go to commercial break and you're standing around like anybody would stand around but it's paul simon and it's you know it's imagine Peter if they Gabriel. had cell phones back then you'd be taking yourself oh <laughs> i miss so many great cell phone selfie <laughs> opportunities it's yeah. unbelievable but yeah. so being at the grammys was a massively proud moment for us mm-hmm. but but you really feel like you're um you know you're representing the country because you do realize that the you know out of all the bands that are deserving mm-hmm. only a sprinkling get that shortlist so yeah absolutely you know so it's it's uh, it's a very fortunate position to be in you've been in music now or at least with glass tiger for like 30 plus years um a lot has changed from when um the guys at capitol records first heard of you and today, um, you know, it, it, it baffles my mind how 
people from outside of Toronto or let's say outside of Ontario would, would ever hear of Tokyo, a.k.a. Glass Tiger. Um, today we could kind of figure it out. You know, you can put some stuff up on SoundCloud. You can put stuff up on YouTube. Um, you know, you, you could throw up a website and, and be on social media. Um, so the discovery is it has changed. Maybe it's made it easier or maybe it's it's harder because so many people can self-publish and produce stuff on their own, um, you know, with their Mac computers and things like that. Um, and then the whole business of music has changed uh, as well, where, you know, people are streaming more. Um, and so there's there's a huge emphasis on touring. Um, from your vantage point, um, what has changed? What is good about the uh, uh, about the current state of the the music business, um, and and how can um, the Glass Tigers of today or the Tokyo's of today make it? What what sort of insights and, and and recommendations would you give? The more I the more I look at it, I have I have four kids, mm -hmm. ranging from twenty one up to thirty one. Mm -hmm. And I watch how they consume music. Yeah. Because I, I, I use them as a barometer because, sure. you know, in, in your 50s and, and coming from a different background, <clears throat> you definitely have a different perspective. And one of the things that a band like Glass Tiger has had to do is, of course, come up to speed over the years because the industry has changed. I would say there are some fundamental things that have never changed. Mm hmm and for me, the more I, I listen to what my daughters are listening to, the more I hear the music, I still believe in the value of a song. I still believe in what resonates. And sometimes they'll play me some things that I maybe had never been, would never normally be exposed to. But they will play it for me. I can appreciate how cool it is. Mm -hmm. um, but... It's the vehicle to delivery is different. So obviously, they're just the, the digital wave of things. Yeah. So cutting through the noise, as they say, is a very uh, real and difficult challenge. But I would say, honestly, cutting through the noise in our day, there's still noise to cut through. Hmm. So I don't know at the end of the day, people think, oh, it's too much content. It's too much content. How do you break through? I think it's always been difficult to resonate uh, and, and, and cut your wave through that noise. I don't think that's ever going to change. It's a little more may maybe readily available back in the day when you wanted to, you know, you had to go and, and like dub cassette tapes and yeah. sell them under the boot of your car or whatever. <laughs> uh, or, you know, or press, you know, bands would go and they'd save all their money and press 1500 vinyl CDs or whatever. And it would be, it was a little more sort of limited. But I think the challenge is the same. I think that if, you're, if you've truly got something to offer and it doesn't suck, mm -hmm. there's that That's suck the again, <laughs> then I think it will cut through the noise. The, only, the biggest thing that's changed in the industry from my standpoint is the people around you that, that would get involved would be like the record labels, mm -hmm. publishers. They're in a different perspective because they have the ability now to let you take a lot of the risk yeah you can throw it against the wall mm -hmm. and see what sticks mm -hmm. and they are there they're still talented people they still know there's talented people out there but they don't have to they have the luxury 
of being able to sit back and let it simmer and then mm. break wide open. And most people that rattle the cages of the industry are already doing great things yeah. on their own. Who are you listening to? Uh, you know, again, I love listening. Uh, oh, my God. And, and I just remember, I try to remember this fella's name. My daughter's been playing his playlist. <laughs> and I, I'll look it up. I'll look it up for you in that. And when I hear it, I hear it's great. I love yeah. it. I don't love everything. Sure. Uh, you know, and I, I do have a very broad spectrum of taste mm -hmm. um, from classical to Frank Sinatra to, to you know, to, to even some of the Drake stuff with with limitations. Mm -hmm. um, some of it, I feel that it's 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 just a, a little bit forgettable. And it's one of the things that we used to talk about with a guy like Jim Valance. Yeah. When he was writing hit song and hit song with Aerosmith and Tina yeah. Turner and 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 Brian Adams and Glass Tiger and and Heart and these bands when you listen to the hit songs that that man has had you go wow not only do you hear that song but it goes in your back pocket and you take it out the door with you yeah it stays with you some of the songs i hear i don't mind but it doesn't resonate to the point where i take it with me interesting and i think that's one of the things that is a hit the difference between a hit yeah and i and and disposable yeah and some of the sure. stuff I hear, I find a little disposable, and it's not bad, mm -hmm. but it, it's a little bit forgettable, and next week it won't matter to me. Yeah. But I watch how my younger uh, kids, and when I say younger, they're 20s, early mm -hmm. 20s, they very much consume music that way, and they move on so quickly. I think they're, 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 very, um, uh, you know, they're very discerning, mm. and, and the stuff can, man, they're, they're fickle. Their taste will go... Like, heartbeat. My biggest thing with my daughter is listening to a song from the beginning to end. <laughs> the That's, patience to listen to well, it. Well, they, 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 their patience level is yeah, short. sure. You know, sure. which, which kind of reminds me of when I used to do songwriting workshops and people would say, you know, but wait till you get to the bridge. The bridge is amazing. I'm going, no, no, no. You don't understand. You're sending this to a record company or publisher. They're not getting to the bridge. No. Do not save your best stuff to the end. <laughs> lead strong, leave confident, put your best foot forward. Because if you don't nail them in the first thing, it's you're dead in the water. That's funny. They're not going to wait and look into it. They, in your head, they might, but in reality, they won't. <laughs> what do What do your kids think of their dad? Um, like, are you a rock star at home still? Or, I or well, I I razzed them up a little bit. So <laughs> so the funny thing is, it just happened this morning because of the Massey Hall show. Uh, my daughter is seeing a lot of. There's a lot of ramp up. There's a lot of press, mm -hmm. and um, I was rehearsing in the house a little bit on my own, and she's listening to it. And they just because it was just Father's Day. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. Right. So I noticed, and I could pull it up at the end of the interview and show you. But my two daughters posted the funniest Father's Day tribute mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. And that may answer your question better than anything. Nice. But they, because uh, they, my two daughters, my sons are older and they lived through, my sons lived in a tour bus with oh, me. Oh, wow. So they know the world of my world, mm -hmm. you know, better than my daughters. My daughters are seeing it from a distance. Yeah. But it is quite funny. They treat it like it's nothing. But some of their friends, and not really their friends, their parents of their friends, yeah. will often come in and go, Oh my God, Kira's dad is the guy from Glass Tiger, right? So I, I get a bit of that. Yeah. And uh, we and all. Your daughter's a grazer, eyes over. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, honestly, I, I think if uh, I mean, if you were to ask anybody that's in 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 the entertainment field, 
It could be a musician, it could be an actor or a sports person. Yeah. Sometimes your kids, because they have close proximity to you, their perspective is quite different. It's different. Yeah. It's quite different. That's so true. That is so true. Mm. How did you guys last 30 plus years? Uh, the, the best, uh, and I would recommend, first of all, we didn't know we were going to last 30 years. Sure. So that's the main thing. I remember a famous interview that I believe it was, it might have been George Harrison, uh, that answered this on behalf of a reporter mm-hmm. about you know wh- how long do you think the Beatles will stay together, and I remember the answer being quite revealing because it was an early early in their career, and they were talking of a window of about five years because mm-hmm. their perspective at the time was the focus. I would say that our focus was definitely the same when we we're starting out. We're, we're focused on what's in front of us for the next six to eight months. Yeah, you're never thinking. Well, what will this look like 30 years from now? You're not thinking of your greatest hits no. album, your 25th anniversary album. Absolutely yeah. not. So that is a non-issue. Yeah. When you arrive mm-hmm. at that, then you look backward with a retrospect and go, huh, that was 30, really. Hey? So for us, it feels like everything from the 80s feels like it was last week. Wow. So... In our head, mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit like when you talk to somebody who's in their maybe even their 60s or 70s, and they say, you know, enjoy every day because you blink, and a decade, and and it does seem like time ramps up as you get older. Sure, sure. And it seems like a decade doesn't mean like what a decade did when you were in your 20s. Um, for bands, it's a bit the same way. Our our perspective is only now looking back on 30 years. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, we focused on what was gig was in front of us that night and what was maybe the next week. And uh, it's a very, very cool position to think that we've lasted 30 years. And to answer your question about why, because uh, a lot of bands do not have that longevity. No, they don't. Um, one of the things that I think is unique about Glass Tiger is that if you were to sit and interview each guy in the band Mm-hmm. you would get a different person sitting here. Mm-hmm. And it's and a different answer. And a different answer. Yeah. And a different perspective. Yeah. And, you know, they, they might have some points. You go, yeah, I agree with Sam on that. But you would get a different answer. And one of the things I think that makes a great marriage, because that's what it is. Sure. It's a marriage times four. Yeah. Is, is the diversity. Hmm. And there's things that we are totally, we finish each other's sentences on. <laughs> we were they're that close. Like, after 30 years, we actually do that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I would say that we are four very different people, and that may be our saving grace. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the um, the show this Saturday, June twenty third at Massey Hall. Uh, but tell me quickly, you've you've started a a, a production recording company, uh, Willow Music. Um, I actually started that in ninety four. Okay. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but no, tell me about it. Yeah. It's been around for a long. So when the band took um, a break, yeah. We all look for different projects sure. to do. Uh, I'm not a singer. Yeah. I'm a terrible singer. Alan <laughs> handles that in yeah. great form. So one of the things that I love doing is producing. I loved writing music, but producing. Yeah. So I, when the band took a break uh, in, in 90, after the Simple Mission record, so 92, 93, mm-hmm. uh, we all looked for things to keep ourselves busy. I actually did a lot of co-writing with Alan for his first two solo records. So, yeah. so that felt like a Glass Tiger record, sure. only it was him. Yeah. Um, but on the side, one of the things that I had a real interest and still have an interest in doing is producing. Mm-hmm. So I started a production company called Willow Music, yeah. and that is continued till today. Uh, and I produced some instrumental records that have done 
really well for mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. There's a series called the Sanctuary series, which is it's more um, it's more relaxation okay. kind of stuff. So it's just kind of melodies that I had in my head, and instead of giving it to a singer, I'd put it on a cello or I'd put it on a piano part, oh. or I'd put it on something else. And and uh, I got involved in that industry and did really really well with it. Nice. And and Willow Music is a is a, a boutique label mm -hmm. that I can do that mm -hmm. or I can produce some young talent in it and do and things like that. So it, it's uh, that keeps me busy. So outside of Glass Tiger, which is my priority, yeah. always I have my Willow Music label, which is a boutique label that I can just run the way nice. I want. Any yeah. cool bands coming out of that? Um, there's a band called the Alpacas, okay. which are based out of Toronto here. Uh, great lads. Yeah. Um, very much the indie scene. Okay. Uh, very much not like Last Tiger. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, they are great. Again, they, there was something about their music that really resonated with me. Yeah. And I really enjoyed their passion and their dedication. And I felt that they had a great team together. So I, I'm delighted to have them on the label. Nice. So it's a very hand-picked label. It's, okay. It's, it's not a open the floodgates and everything. Sure. So anybody that's on that label means it's somebody that really turns my crank. Tell me about your relationship with the Snowbirds. <laughs> well, uh, I'm still officially, so I can say it officially. Yeah. I'm an honorary colonel in the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, I started in uh, the band, started doing these... Um, uh, special events, uh, special trips mm -hmm. with the military back in 1996. And we went to places like Bosnia. Uh, okay, yeah. We went to uh, you know Egypt and, and Alert, which is the North Pole. And it was mostly like, I call it the Bob Hope tour. Sure, yeah. You know, back in the day, Bob Hope used to do these uh, morale boost tours. Mm -hmm. And he'd have dancers and singers and comedians and musicians. Yeah. It was very much started like that. Uh, did a bunch of those. Really enjoyed them. Got mm -hmm. to meet some amazing people. And uh, in, in 2009, Canada celebrated a, a centennial of flight, 100-year anniversary of flight. So I wrote a, wrote a piece of music to go with a jet that was flying in the air show. Ah. And uh, the head of the Air Force, the chief of the Air Force, said to me, have you heard of the honorary colonel program? And I said, no. And he said, well... If you'd be interested, I'd love to put your name forward. Oh, wow. Uh, so I got my name on a short list. Mm -hmm. And a year later, I got appointed an honorary colonel of the Air Force. And I'm delighted. And I'm seven years. I'll be seven years when I finish next June. Yeah. And uh, it's a great way to uh, connect me with our military serving folks. Uh, but the Snowbirds, of course. Yeah. I got to occasionally when your thumb is out, you get a, get a chance to do some fun stuff. Like hitching a ride with the snowbirds. Tell or, me about that. You've done that, right? Yeah, I've done the snowbirds and I've done a, a CF F eighteen yeah. Hornet, and and a bunch of our transport planes, which are C seventeens and Hercs and. And how like that? You feel the speed in those? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very unique opportunity. The snowbirds is is a very unique. Uh, they're a one of a kind item. Yeah. Uh, because it's nine planes in in tight formation. Yeah. So when you're in the middle of a snowbird cluster. Um, you're you're looking very very close at the plane above you and below you, to the point where you can read serial numbers off of the the tail, you know. So and you can see, you know, whatever oil is dripping off the plane ahead of you. <laughs> so it, it's a very uh, unique. Uh, it's, you'd never ever be able to fly an aircraft that close without. Are you training. a pilot as well? Or? I am not. Okay. I've been able to fly. They yeah. give me the stick once in a while. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've I've been able to be a pretend pilot for a while. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, I'm a passenger, and and, and I I think if I was in my twenties, knowing what I know now and getting mm -hmm. the the experiences, 
uh, from the Snowbirds and, and the military and the Air Force in general. I probably would have uh, thought about a career in, in, the, uh, in, in the Air Force. Nice. Yeah. So we're recording this on Tuesday. You yep. got a, uh, uh, an iconic show coming up on Saturday. Yes. Uh, playing at the Massey Hall before uh, she closes down for a couple of years and um, gets refurbished. What is, you guys, like I said, you know, you guys have been around for 30 plus years. What does it mean now to go and play that venue? Well, it's funny. I just picked up the two um, Nashville players that are joining us at mm -hmm. the Massey Show. The first time in Canada, first time in Toronto. Yeah. So I picked them up at the airport, dropped them at their hotel, and I explained to them how what this show means on Saturday. Because mm -hmm. their perspective is quite different coming sure. from the U.S. And so for our 30-plus history, I said to them, and I said, I don't want to overweight the Saturday, but Saturday night is probably the biggest show or the key the key show the band's ever done in 30 years hmm. and they were like they were getting nervous <laughs> thinking well you're putting a lot of pressure on us kind of thing but honestly massey hall is on the same level as carnegie hall it's mm -hmm. the same level as uh, the, the the ryan theater in, in in nashville if every city has these iconic venues mm -hmm. that supersede the city because of the history. I mean, uh, Massey just celebrated uh, their 124th birthday. So yeah. 124 years ago, that venue was was dedicated to the city of Toronto. Yeah. To be able to be on that stage when so many other people, and I've seen, I've been there for many shows, mm -hmm. never thought, you know, that it would be our show. So the venue is just not a venue. Uh, we're treating it like it's the biggest show we've done in the band's history. Yeah. So th that Massey Hall means that much. And we uh, we are looking forward to it. And be able to grace that stage prior to it closing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the renovations are going to be uh, amazing. Yeah. I've seen the plans. Um, and I'd love to do the, the new venue when it's, sure. when it's done. But there's something pretty cool about saying we played it before and we played it after. Absolutely. And being on the list of, of artists that have played it prior to closing yeah it's pretty special it's like telling people you were at the old yankee stadium you know if you're a baseball exactly. fan exactly yeah or or a candlestick park yes. or maple leaf gardens because maple leaf gardens right. is now reconfigured that's right so and we played yeah, maple, leaf gardens. maple leaf gardens yeah we did that and i mean the beatles were there yeah so maple leaf gardens and, and i know right. the building is still intact but they've yeah. re reformed it yeah but there's nothing like standing in front of seventeen thousand people at maple leaf gardens and we get no that is different, we get to do 2500 people yeah at massey hall so after this weekend um like i know you said you know you guys have been around for 30 um you guys weren't looking that far ahead but i'm curious after saturday is is there a is there a what's next for for glass tiger uh yeah we have a game plan we have a basically a two to five year window mm -hmm. that we're working on because of because of the um, where we're at with all of our lives, yeah, uh, we're really really enjoying. I mean, you could call it a swan song, mm -hmm. you could call it a twilight song, mm -hmm. you can call it whatever you want, but we're definitely in our final chapter of what we have to offer to the next one in our history, and I think that the next two to five years, our game plan. Even that we love this record that we've just done, 31, mm -hmm. uh, which was a reimagining of a lot of songs that people will know. But in the background, uh, which was meant to come out on our 30th because of Alan's stroke, we're not doing that. Yeah. 
it is in our background. There's some brand new material that are going to come out within this calendar year. Nice. And, uh, and that is going to ride us out into the sunset. And uh, whether it's one record or two record, um, we, we can, we're just going to enjoy the next two to five years. And our game plan is to make the most of that. Hmm. And as individuals, well, everybody's healthy and focused. Sure, yeah, yeah. That's the big thing. And it sounds silly. When you're 20s, you don't say that. But when no. you're 50s, you do. <laughs> and, and the key thing is that you're nothing without your health. True. So uh, right now, we're, we have great spirits and great energy. Alan is singing his ass off. He's, he's stronger today, I swear, than he is in 1980. Mm-hmm. So, Alan so he's is, bounced back very well. Uh, he is in great shape. Nice. The band, and that's motivated us. Yeah. And I think that uh, that's what we're playing on, and we'll ride that out into the sunset. Nice. Sam, before I, I let you leave, I just want to thank uh, everybody for joining us. If you want to hear more conversations like this, uh, you can go check out girthradio.com or kareemkanji.com and please uh, subscribe, rate, and, v- and review this podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and almost everywhere else that you download music. And if you did, uh, or download podcasts, um, and if you like this episode, uh, go to kareemkanji.com and search out uh, my previous conversations with other musicians like Biff Naked, uh, Jim Cregan from the Bare Naked Ladies, and Maestro Fresh Wes uh, as well. Um, Sam, if, pe- if people want to uh, continue following along with some of your adventures, where can they do that? Well, the best thing is the, the band socials, of course. Yeah. We, we live on Facebook, Glass Tiger Band. I think it's that, that's the official. <laughs> uh, at Glass Tigers, our Twitter. We have Instagram. See, for old guys, we're still pretty hip. You we're see, plugged there you in. <laughs> I thank my daughters. No, no, we, we're actually tuned in. We, for, we do enjoy that. We stay in touch. One of the best things about all that new social stuff is that it's a great way to stay in touch with fans yeah. on a day-to-day basis. And it's very, very, like we, we do that right from the venue. And uh, please reach out to us. Uh, glasstiger.ca is the website. All of our social links are on there. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much for joining me thank today. Thank you, Krim.